Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. How's how's life going? I see your cat's moving around up there again, as always. Yeah, yeah. She she always wants to be involved in the conversation. So, what does she have to say about this? Basically, I think she's saying I'm not paying enough attention to her. So, <laughs> perfect. Oh man, what else has been going on in life other than cats? Uh, you know, just getting getting going in the new job, starting to feel productive, learning a lot. Feels good. Writing some Things rust. Things are kind of writing some rust. Well, not not so much. I'm setting it up so that we can write rust. Ah, right <laughs> You know, it's like you got to change all the tool chain and, and uh, you know, set up CI and, like, decide on a project structure. And, like, that that has just taken some time this week. You, so. you got a whole bunch of people out there who are like, yeah, he's writing it in Rust. And then you have another group of people that is like, why is he not doing Zig? And <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, it, the answer is really simple. We need to run in the browser. And oh, there you go. Wasm is really well supported on Rust right now. So that's the go. answer. Oh, yeah, we talked about that before. should remember yeah, that. Yeah, I think we did. Sorry. I don't want to do another episode me. about that. No, let's not. <laughs> oh, man. So you've been doing a lot of rust. I've been doing a lot of surface work, surface live view surface. Um, do, you oh. know, do you know what surface is? I have a vague idea. So it's, it's like a component library for live view? Yeah. yeah. And are ready for this? I don't like Heeks. The new component okay. type syntax that Phoenix is using, um, mainly uh, because the difference between like uh, an HTML form and a component form that you build is if you name it form is just a period in the front mm, a lot of times, and that's not visible to me. When that, I'm looking, that sounds really error prone. Yeah, yeah. When I'm looking at it, and and I've run into being like, I, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why this isn't working. Oh, it has a dot, or it doesn't have a dot, or whatever. And it's just, it's not that visible. Um, mm-hmm. So I like Surface having, like the ca- they're using the module name, so it's like a capital letter, really makes it stand out. And then Surface just has some really like nice features built in uh, mm. the way that they handle CSS. Uh, I just, I just figured it out last night how to add. So you can have CSS classes on something and then you can okay. add more of them. And then I also figured out how to do override. So I could say uh, on my component, like, oh, we, we were doing a badge, right? Like the little numbered badge that pops up on your phone whenever you have like in a notification messages. thing yeah yeah just like the little one that says hey you've got something to do here cool. and um sometimes we needed to add to the css class and you know the the front end developer who's here in kansas city kenny he's really awesome was like well what if i want to override like so that was actually like really simple so it it has Good. a component type so when you, when you are a property type, when you have a component, you can define properties and you can say whether they're required or not. And it's got some really nice stuff where it'll build documentation for you. If you pull in the component catalog, um, which we do, we pull in the component catalog and it goes through our system and we build examples so that developers have a list of every component that we have made. And with like examples, a style guide. yeah, yeah. 
Cool. And it has examples of usage plus all of the properties and everything that that thing takes if they're required, if they have defaults, whether it takes a list or a struct or CSS class is one of them. And the CSS class can take a class or a keyword list. And it's like the old style keyword list where they don't all have to have a key before it. Like, so you can have some that don't, that's just a string. So you have like some strings and then you have a, a keyword with a bool after it and the keyword with the bool after it. So you can p- use properties and stuff on those. And if it has true, it adds it. If it's false, it doesn't add it. And if okay. you use CSS class, you can, if you put that in there, if you have a, a property that is CSS class, it will, and you have already have CSS classes built in, as long as you put them in that list format, it kind of like IO list, it spreads it out and handles it correctly and combines it all into one CSS class. So that's how you can add them. And then all I did was take our default classes and do that colon thing and do override CSS. So if they say true or not override CSS, so if they say override CSS true, then the class property will get, will be the only ones that get added. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling. It was so. Yeah, no, that's, th- they that's have great. A, though. a lot of tools for like really building these things out. I like them. Yeah. I, I haven't, um, looked at the, the, the templating thing in anger yet. Um, but I, I've heard mixed things about it. A lot of people feel like the H E E X templates, um, that, um, they improve things. Um, but honestly, if, if you're, if you're at the point where you don't have to care as much, um, which format it is in, that's probably, probably a better experience for you all. Yeah. And what it sounds like here, you know, you're talking about feels, it feels a bit like react components. It it is, it is heavily react, um, component influenced. They even have Mm -hmm. places in the document where they're like, this is like a react component. (laughs) Okay. Which also makes it simple for us to grab somebody who maybe doesn't do Elixir and say, Hey, we need, we need some front end work or whatever. And they can do that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking uh, as you um, were talking about the, the the troubles with form versus dot form, mm-hmm. um, the uh, that that feels like a a limitation of the the template language itself. It should uh, unify those things, right? Um, or or they or are they trying to do something where well, you can have your you know eex templates, but put this put this other stuff in there. Uh, on top of it, um, that that feels like that would be a bit, I don't know, hard, harder to make clear. Yeah, and I, I, I'm also remembering back in the days of so, you know the JavaScript front end, you know UI frameworks. They actually React has been around a long time now, but like it feels like they churn over so fast. And e- even within the the main ones, that they like change their their ideas about what what is good practice or what they're going to do um, very frequently. You know, they're either chasing after, uh, you know, functionality or performance or, or something like that. But like there were, before I picked up React back in the day, I used Ember a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, within that time, they probably had three different ways to do templating. 
Um, and it and and when I say that, it's like maybe it's still the t- same template language, but like the semantics of what you wrote inside the template might change. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and those those shifts are really confusing and like at times hard to upgrade. Yeah. Um, and and I run into that with Heeks, right? Like, so if you do the dot, mm-hmm. you have one format, and then you have like the when you're escaping to just put regular Elixir in there, it's another format. And yeah, the, I, I, the, I like in both of them though, that I can combine just plain HTML with a component. Mm-hmm. If I had to turn everything into a component, all the way, that would get frustrating. And it's also, you know, makes it easy to start utilizing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one thing that, at least with JSX, React got right, mm-hmm. um, is that they, you know, they said, okay, y- you know, you can use HTML elements wherever you want, but we're going to turn them into our, like, DOM, you know, construction thing, you know, the functions that, that produce the the objects that, that have assign properties on them uh, from from the context uh, that you that you created the the um, the tag so to speak in um, and then and then your components look the same as the HTML elements and that I, I'm, it sounds like that's what surface is doing for you I think that's actually a really good way to go I mean other than the capital letter it looks like a yeah. component I, other than yeah. it starts <laughs> the capital and I like that it starts with the capital because I can be like oh that's I know that's a component. Uh, right, because they do have a form component, and maybe I don't want to use that for some reason, or right. I want to use some helper from from Phoenix. That mm-hmm. I don't get confused that oh, that's that's the this thing and not the HTML, or I I know if I have a bug, where to go look, kind of stuff. Yeah, and they they also have like the other thing I like is when you compile, if you're missing a closing div or anything, it tells you mm-hmm. at compile time. I don't have to go to the web page and be like, why is this all wonky? Mm-hmm. Or, or why does this not load right? You know? So it's, it, it does check for matching stuff and uh, you can say that properties are required or not. So you also get that to where I, I mean with Heeks, you know, it's just a function. It's functions all the way down, right? So if I have a required yes. property, I just make it part of the function signature that it's required, mm-hmm. or or I write code to deal with that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, li- I like Surface. It's been great. Yeah, <laughs> the catalog good. is amazing. Like, that's that's worth the price of admission after you figure out how to get it laid out nicely. Yeah, a lot of the. Uh, the React projects I've had to interact with use that. Um, I think it's called Storybook, and so mm-hmm. basically you you create examples for each of your components, and it, it's a it's a good thing. Yep, um, they, helps helps them with documentation. Does Storybook have a playground also? I think so. I think it, okay. it's sort of like a code pen in page, and you can yeah, like I, change the component and see what what happens. We haven't added that to ours yet. But I thought mm-hmm. about trying it out and seeing what does Playground look like? What does it do? Because I haven't, because I just noticed it in the code. I didn't see it in any documentation. Mm-hmm. It's probably in the documentation. There's a lot of documentation. And actually, that's probably my biggest complaint about Surface is documentation. 
because I'm I get but used to looking with live view too, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. The, but the whole tool chain. Yeah. The surface documentation is not xdoc. Oh. It's like their catalog. And sometimes things and, and I've I've just started noticing this in the last couple of days. It's like there's some things that just say oh, like CSS class. Like you can use CSS class and this just works. And I'm like, well, I don't understand what that means. Yeah. What what just works. <laughs> so I'm gonna go probably try to update some documentation if I can between meetings today and and push some stuff back to them. But I got I'm used to the hex docs format. Right. And now I have this other format for my components, which makes it tough on my brain sometimes. Cause I'm like, I just I want all the Xdocs tools. I want it to show up in my Dash program that I'm running mm-hmm. locally, and it doesn't. So, uh, but since we've added the catalog to our internal, it shows up in our project when you're in dev mode. So, yeah, <laughs> I guess we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, if we want to dig back even further into uh, history of web development, I was also reminded of uh, it's a framework, web framework in Erlang called nitrogen um that was doing some of this uh and back when it was called dynamic html right mm-hmm. um you know sort of like live update type stuff over web sockets um and they they uh, that framework did you constructed your your html output with erlang records so it was like um you could create the whole page with you know pound HTML open brackets, you know, children equals pound head, you know, and do all that stuff. Um, and it would, uh, it would render the HTML, uh, out of these, these deeply nested records, just kind of wild. That makes me think of how Elm does. Mm-hmm. HGH, yeah. Cause it's like the list. It's kind of like an IO list or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think is great about that is then you can codify all those rules that, most browsers ignore anyway, but like you can't put this, you can't put a table head in a div. So if you accidentally mm-hmm. have something in the wrong place, it'll tell you at compile time, which is kind of nice. Um, I don't think nitrogen did that, but that would be cool. Yeah. I'm surprised if they had, if they were doing, it seems like if you had a data format, you'd just check your data. Well, I, I guess mean, that, can't, that can get hard so, too. So it's tuples. You know? uh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Tuples filled with tuples, filled with tuples. Yes, basically, yeah. <laughs> with a lot of defaults on. Uh, so when you constructed the records, you didn't have to fill out every every attribute of the record. Oh, that's nice too. Yeah, I haven't used records in a long time. I can't say that I'm unhappy about that. <laughs> most most of the time, I've used it lately. It's been for interop with Erlang libraries. Yeah, like I have to read their records to work with them. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's nice though. Like I, I think that they're more compact um, mm-hmm. and obviously more strict than maps. And and elixir structs are kind of like a way around that, you know, middle ground. Yeah. But uh but in terms of you know, if you're thinking about memory usage and regularity of it, like records are way better. Oh yeah, way way lower memory. It's great for like the last time I used records was in an embedded system because Mm-hmm. We wanted to for for those reasons and some interoperability, but 
yeah, the the only th- the thing that I really like is if I do have to debug something and I look at a record, I'm like, crap, now I got to go find the definition of the record to see what order these things are in. And that's, I don't know, having keys is, is beautiful for a debug. Because, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, when you're debugging, it's because you don't know what's going on. Right. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so the more knowledge you can give me without me having to dig, the better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, is, that is a distinct advantage of, of structs over records. To me, that's worth the cost of admission if you, if you have the memory to go for it. I don't know performance-wise how... I mean, if you're updating, updating is not fun on a tuple as for performance. But yeah. I mean, because you, you have to copy the whole yeah. tuple. I mean, as long as it's not big, it doesn't matter that much. But what about... <sighs> I had a question and it just went away. Never mind. Hmm. Forget it. Just, just pretend I didn't say anything. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess we, we could probably assume that uh, you could do the same sort of structural sharing um, in tuples as you could in maps, but you would still have to create it. Like when you, you, when it updates, it probably still creates a new tuple. Like if you call set element. Um, yeah, it's that's, that's an interesting question for the, the OTP folks. Yeah. What does it actually do? <laughs> I don't really want to go read any C today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the semantics are that it's co- that it copies, um, right? But if you can assume but that it, everything that was contained in it is immutable, then then you know you could just reference it. Yeah. So under the covers, it might not actually copy the whole thing. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm curious now. Now I want to go look at how tuples are implemented under the covers <sighs> you've you've destroyed my evening sean well sean i, I, I think yeah <laughs> i'm i'm good at that <laughs> I, uh, I think you could safely assume that it's that it's a uh a contiguous memory with uh you know so let's say you have a, a tuple with six elements in it you have six pointers um mm-hmm. And and probably at the front of that you have some kind of you know metadata in there. Like this is this thing that 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 uh, follows this this uh, block this word is is a tuple and it has six elements. And then you know the the memory layout would be like pointer 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 so on. Yeah, um, and I guess records so you're not changing size, right? So if you're not changing size, it probably can't just update that one pointer location. Because well, it won't no. have to re wait, why not? It, it it would it would copy the structure and then change and then change the the one thing that the one element that changed. Because you still need to be able to refer to the original one, right? Yeah. Because it's immutable. Um, but what my point was more about the structural sharing of the the individual things in it. Uh, so that you wouldn't have to do it like a deep copy. Yeah. So like if element two was some kind of map, you're just pointing to that map. You don't have to copy that whole right. map. Right. Yeah. That's fair. I'm all over the place now. It's going to be a yeah, good night. Too. It's going to be a good night. It's going to be a great, <laughs> great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, other, other interesting things I've been working with. Uh, macaroons. Thanks, Digit. Oh, for good. Ruining my life. Um, Friend of the show. Yeah, 
it it uh they they're like it took me a bit to wrap my head around it like mm-hmm. the always adding restrictions and then like being open by default and like originally i was okay so maybe we should talk about what macaroons are so a macaroon yeah. is um it's like a JWT, it's HMAC sign, but it like wraps itself. So you have a basic macaroon that has some kind of secret key. So you can verify that that they that macaroon was signed with that specific secret key. And then you have caveats, which I, I described this to somebody as it's kind of like blockchain, because a caveat creates a new <laughs> macaroon that wraps the old one with a new signature. And then you can add another restriction that wraps that one with a new signature. So you have like these signatures all the way down, right? That you are required to have the previous thing to get to where you are. The powerful thing with that is that you can have a macaroon that gives you access to, let's say, a list of projects in, in, a, in something. Mm-hmm. And you can then take your list of projects and shrink it like let's say you have projects one to five that you have access to and you can say um two and four i need to give amos access and you just take your macaroon and you add a restriction you can't give me six because i still have to meet your restrictions and the ones you added so you can't give Mm -hmm. me six since you didn't have access to it you can add it but then this macaroon is going to fail anything for a project um and what got me is I originally tried to do like project six as a, as a caveat and then project mm-hmm. seven as another caveat. Well, then when I check project six, project six caveat passes, but project seven caveat now fails. So I actually had to put them in lists and I wasn't thinking about that. And the other thing that got me was if a macaron has a caveat, you have to check it yep, or it fails. And that like got weird to me. I was like, well, I want them to have right. But in this case, this one thing doesn't care if they have right or not. But I had a caveat saying that they had to have right or they couldn't write. Couldn't write. Right equals false. So they can't write. Well, in this one place, I don't care whether they can write or not. I just want to just, like I just wanted to check, do they have access to the project to display it? And then later when they attempt to write, I want to check the right and that you have to check them both. So that. So, so do you think that's a case where you would um, create a different macaroon uh, for the case where they need to write? I think. Or for the case where they read only? I think that lists are key storing lists in there so instead of just right equals false or right equals true or whatever Mm -hmm. i would say uh i don't know permissions equals and have a list read write whatever else i need Mm -hmm. um delete rewrite delete create whatever and then when i process i can process and say oh do they i can just check the do they have read and now mm-hmm. I've checked that. Do they have read? Now I'm good because it's in that list. And I've checked the caveat for permissions. Would it make more sense in that case to not 
put any permissions in there unless you're restricting them to a limited set. Like because the the absence of of a of a caveat is access, right? Yeah, because you can check, you can try to verify all kinds of stuff as long as it's not in the in the macaroon. Mm-hmm. It's verified. Because by default they're open. And so you're yeah. always restricting. But that so that's where I I would get to where but what so like let's say I have a list, right? So I have a list and that list has a an edit button. So okay. I should be able to see everything in that list if I have access to the project. But let's say I don't have edit access. The edit button shouldn't show up. So when I go to check the macaroon, if you have a restriction that says edit only, and I'm just checking right now to see if you can see the list. When I go to verify, if I don't check the permissions for like edit, then Hmm. it tells me that it failed because you have to verify every caveat. If there is a caveat, it must be verified. So it, it sounds like this might be something that's specific to the macaroon library you're using. It may be, maybe. I haven't, I've, I mean, I've or, read the or white paper. Is it like part of the protocol where you have to, you have to, I mean, you know, cause verifying a caveat is just like, do, does it meet the signature? Right. Can, can you compute all the signatures from the bottom all the way up? Right. Um, right. But, uh, but then, you know, if the, if the caveat doesn't apply to the operation being performed, why would that be a problem in your application logic? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I think it's great that you're, you're, you're using macaroons. I've been wanting to use them for a while. We don't have it in anything really in production neat. yet. Oh, okay. So I made a proof of concept where I was like, hey, I want somebody to be able to give a link to customer support. Right. And then customer support can see that one thing and nothing mm-hmm. else for a certain amount of time. And I did a proof of concept. And how I started actually was I made a test file and I used test watch. If you've ever used that mixed test watch. Yeah. And so that it would run it over and over. And I made a macaroon test file and I just wrote tests for like, here's what I think the macaroon does. And I was just testing mm-hmm. macaroon library. And then once I found out that my thoughts were completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> and was able to get tests that tested the functionality that was after. And mm-hmm. made like verified that okay, this is how the macaroon works. Then I went and added it, and it worked out really well. Uh, so I thought that was good, but yeah, um, it was a little, <laughs> it, yeah, everything that I thought was not how it worked, and it was really hard for me to wrap my mind around open by default, right? And then adding restrictions to it, it was like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> I can't figure out what's going on here. Yeah. And I, I, did, did you have a chance to read the, the Google research macaroons paper? Um, I read most of it. Here's what I'm going to show you. This is awesome. So this is, this is page yep. one. And this is the last page. The printer just printed out an error. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even notice. Uh, I was like partway through the paper and I flipped the page and I was like, what the heck? <laughs> Yeah, because I, I think that the key thing here is like it 
or at least my impression, is that they may not be as useful for general purpose um, authorization, but like they're hella useful for delegation. Yeah. So for that case where like you're you're saying, you know, you want to as a you know as a user you want to share access to your private thing with customer support so they can see what you're talking about. That's mm-hmm. a perfect use case. Or or um, I was just thinking about the other day. What if what if we want to give um, uh, for for Fable? What if we want to give people the ability to have share links? Um, mm-hmm. to things that are not public. So sort of like, you know, you, you, you share a Google doc and say only the people with the link, um, yep. similar to that idea where they can, they can see the, the animation, uh, but not make any edits, but it's not publicly listed. If someone tried to navigate to the URL without the, the macaroon, they would just get denied. Yep. Um, like that, that would be a, like a really good use case for macaroons. But then there's also like, I've been thinking about, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that people do with JWTs, with JWT tokens. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but for the most part, uh, you know, you're, you're using something you run yourself or you're using like a third party identity provider to create those and they have all their baggage. Yep. Um, and like my, my impression over <laughs> the last few years is like, you know, that baggage is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as you get can get out of their land and into your own where you can control things is a good thing. Um, and and maybe that's a case where, you know, for that session, after they've authenticated, they sent you a valid jot, you've done the, you know, authorization code exchange, whatever, however you're doing auth- authentication with your identity provider, then you mint a macaroon and that becomes the thing that people use when they're using your app and that's that's kind of where i want to move going forward um Mm -hmm. is is when someone log logs in however that happens whether it comes from an oauth or anything is to then build a macaron for them and put it in their session and use that for authorization and um i I like that I can extend it, you know, and hand it to somebody else. That's nice. I've been thinking about, well, what about like a password reset token? Like right mm-hmm. now we're storing those in the database. We don't need to. We no. can make a macaroon for it and give it a time limit, right? This, this macaroon is right. going to not be any good after this certain time. Um, macaroons are just strings. So Erlang binary to term. And termed binary have been beautiful helpers in that. Sixty-four encoded. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Please, that way I don't have to parse it myself. I can. Yeah. And you know, Digit was doing that cool stuff where he was using the the prolog library that you like to pretend you didn't write. Uh, (laughs) That's not prolog. It's data log. (laughs) Oh, data log. I'm sorry, data log. That's right. The data log library. Um. And he was telling me, like, you can throw Lua in here. You can do all kinds of stuff. And yeah, because you could eval it, right? If you wanted to. Yeah. So that's, that's got some interesting things to it. Um, and well, I, I think that was about uh, structuring the caveats. So they're, they're yeah. not just strings. Yeah. yeah. And right, right now, that's the... It, I mean, it's... it's Digit's library Maybe the reason this happens. At, or because I'm not sure that macaroons really do it. There's not 
the library is set up so that there's not like a good way to get pull data out of a macaroon. Hmm. You can, right? Because you could you can write functions that will like parse the mac the string and you could pull stuff out of mm-hmm. it and do a send to send it out to another process if you really wanted to. But by D like it's it's harder to do that. And so it makes you think about them in a certain way. And I actually think that restriction is really like I could do it if I really wanted to, but the fact that it's a pain makes me not want to. So I'm not going to store something. I'm going to store your permissions in the Mac room, but I'm not going to like pull the list of projects that you have out of the macaroon and then go pull them out of the database. I'm actually still going to use the URL to tell me what project yeah. or what company we're looking at or whatever. And then, mm-hmm. and then I'm just going to use the macaroon to verify that you actually have access to it. Yeah. I think there was a um, part of the motivation of, of putting data log in it was that you could provide let me take a step back for a second and I'll come back to that thought. But, uh, you know, authorization is always contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when, when you, when you want to compare, uh, or when you want to make an authorization decision, you have to look at what is the context that I'm trying to authorize and then what rights have been granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, uh, with data log, that could be, you know, your rights are a combination of plain facts and rules. And your context is just plain facts. So uh, so you combine those two data log programs, so to speak, and then you, you know, you, you do the full unification. And then if something doesn't unify, that tells you that the macaroon, you know, does not give you access. What is unify? And hopefully maybe a little. What is unify? What is unify? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a this is a fundamental thing I, in logic I've languages only like data log. Data log barely. Yeah, so so um, cool story. Data log and prolog look like Erlang because Erlang came mm-hmm. its syntax came from prolog. Uh, but the uh, so if you think of in in Erlang, you know, you have a function name and then it has some parameters. And then you have, you know, the arrow and then the body of the function. And then finally, the last clause of the function, you have a period. Um, well, in data log and prolog, you can, uh, you can declare things that look like functions. Um, in data log, they're usually called facts or functors or something like that. Um, and they have no body. It's just, you know, foo period is a fact. Um, and, and that says, here's, here's some data. And, and then, so, so unification is about, uh, is mostly about rules. So you have unbound variables in rules. Um, and, uh, what unification does is goes from the bottom up, no, starting from what you know. So like the things that have no unbound variables, um, and then it looks at the body of the rules, which is sort of like the body of a function. Mm-hmm. Um, and for each clause of, I say each clause, each fact that's stated in the body of a rule with ba- unbound variables in it, try to find a fact that will fit that. Um, so this is this kind of like bottom-up but recursive determination. So what you're trying to do is like fill out facts that are full determinations of the head of a rule. 
So like you're going from what is in the body, this is like inverse to what, you know, Erlang and Elixir do, going from what's in the body to determine what the, the inputs, so to speak, are. So, uh, you know, the, the, the classic example for data log and prolog is, uh, you know, you have a, 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 a family tree type thing. So you have facts that say uh, so-and-so is the parent of this other person. And uh, you, then you have, uh, you build up additional information by saying, is this person does this person have this other person as an ancestor? Or uh, alternatively, which is the, the logic program way to go, is who are the ancestors of this person? And, and so you build a rule where you say, you know, ancestor can be determined by either that person is direct parent of, of, the, of the, the child, or there is a parent for that child and the ancestor of that, of that parent is someone else. So you have a bunch of unbound variables there. Mm -hmm. And so you could say, you know, if you put in all these, you know, basically tuples of, you know, uh, Sean's parents are Harold and Carrie and Harold's parents are uh, Bill and Ruby and Carrie's parents are, um, are Paul and Helen and, and so on going up through your, your tree. And those are just individual facts, right? Mm -hmm. um, they have no body. There's no, there's nothing unbound about those. Um, and then you would write your ancestor rule and you could say you could run the, the date in data log, you would just run the program and it would determine all of the, the reachable facts. Uh, in prologue, you would pose a question of who are the ancestors of Sean? And in data log, the result would be, you know, Bill is an ancestor of Sean. Uh, Ruby is an ancestor of Sean. Harold is an ancestor of Sean. You so see, you got my parent there. Right. And, and so forth until you have all the facts determined. Um, and that's, if you think about that as the, um, you know, you're, you're determining the, the dependencies of, of a rule and then you're filling out the rule. So how does that apply to, to macaroons? Why would you want to use data log and macaroons? First of all, you're structuring those caveats, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you're saying the, this is some fact that has to be true. And, uh, and then, you know, at the point of authorization, you're saying, here are the facts I know about this call. Not all the facts have to apply to those rules, but the rules will say, you know, that these, these things have to unify or so like, so you could, you could say, I want to make sure that this person, um, is able to edit this or is not let's say that's probably the wrong way to go because all caveats are negative, not, not positive assertions, right? They're restrictions. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> so, so sometimes how I write them, how I've been writing them, not using data log though. Is yeah. I explain what you have access to. It is a restriction because it's okay. like a list, but it's, it's like projects. I would say it's, you have projects one and two. It's narrower than everything. Yeah. 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 So I guess it is, um, but it feels weird to call it a restriction. When you look at it, you're like, oh, that means that they have access to these. So it looks like you're giving them something. Yeah. But really, if you don't have it, then they have everything. So that's where my, that's where it was really hard for me to think about when I first started looking. I was like, wait a minute. They shouldn't have access to anything. I didn't give them anything. Oh, wait, yeah. they have access to everything. Then. Yeah. 
Like, yeah. So, so I think how, how that would apply with you know here here the maybe maybe I need to reframe my initial like claim there. I, maybe the authorization context is not is not uh, the initial set of facts. Maybe it's the things that you want to unify. So, for example, uh, you know, especially if there exists a caveat for that thing. Um, it's like if you say, you know, project ID is seven. Um, then you would expect project ID seven to be in one of the caveats, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because that, that has to unify. If it's not there, then maybe it doesn't unify. I think, I think this is where it gets a little bit complicated. Um, and, and there's a whole bunch of research about data log with negation, um, which we're probably not like, I, I don't think digit had ever thought that that would be involved. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems with negation. Um, uh, that's, that's sort of like what you were saying, uh, earlier. Well, you know, initially the, 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 the macaroon has, well, they can read, write and create and delete you know, as, Mm -hmm. as permissions. And then you have another caveat that's like, oh, well, it's, well, they can't edit. That's probably not a caveat you would write. No, no, probably not. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how, right. That's, that's why I was going back to the list, but I think that the list could be, these are facts. You can't read, you can't write, you can't edit. Mm -hmm. And then you're, what it, you, the question you pose, or I don't remember what you called it. Uh, yeah, would be like uh, I think can yeah can I edit? Yeah, but I think those would all live in one caveat. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that this is an interesting thing we'll have to look into after. Yeah, yeah, might have to play with that. I don't think we're going to solve it while we're recording. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh. And we're coming up on 45 minutes already. I don't feel like we've talked that long. No, it doesn't feel like it. It's been a good one today, I think. Uh, Well, we can keep going if you want. Sure. Or are you okay? Keep going then. Yeah. Where are we going next? Where's this train headed? Yeah. So I I want to, you've been doing, you know, consulting for a long time. Mm -hmm. You've done agile as well as, you know, just software development stuff. Mm -hmm. One thing that's come up recently uh, is, I've been looking at some of the literature that's out there on it, um, but I wanted to get your feelings on code review because uh, it's something I think that most most companies do mm-hmm. right now. Um, but uh, I don't know what 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 are your what are your thoughts about code review? What do you what do you like dislike about it? What do you try to get out of it? Oh, just in general. Okay, so this yeah. is very broad. Uh, this is pretty funny i've been talking about this uh last couple days um okay one thing that i try to get out when i'm when i'm doing a review partially is like understanding where the code is going and trying to get an understanding of the story behind it so that if i have to work on it later because we typically don't work in like your this vertical and nobody else touches it right so we're moving Mm -hmm. around a lot um, so it's helps build familiarity with more than whoever did it on the team. So that's one, one thing. Um, 
And and I I I, I want to caution. There's like the formal code review where you gather everybody in a room and you all look at a big giant thing. That's not something that I've ever really do or push for, unless there's like something that ninety percent of the team is like, I have no idea what this is, and then that's more just to yeah. share knowledge too, right? It's not like let's break this down, tear it apart, say. The other thing is, um, I have so many opinions here, is to look for possibilities of bugs or did this really, like, it's the first line of defense to QA, I think, right? Like, we shouldn't just throw Mm -hmm. it over the wall and expect them to throw it back if it doesn't work. So, during code review, I also run all the code. I look for it for anything where I'm like, is there a bug in here? Like, is there some case that maybe they didn't think about or are there mm-hmm. cases that they thought about that I haven't? Uh, what What's going on there? Is this code efficient? Like, it, you know, does it meet the actual requirements that we're after? Um, and, and I play with it because if I can't get through it with a, with basic, playing around with it, QA is going to just destroy it and we're wasting their time. And then part of it is, is like learning from reading the code. Like that's my code reading. I learn from it and then also teaching. And, you know, I think everybody, everybody has a tendency to hit the lowest bar that's set right on a team, no matter what. So code review to me is a place to, try to push that bar up the bar often is trying to go down. Yeah. And I'm not saying like, Oh, you need to rewrite this. Not like a huge push, but like, I think every time you do a code review, you should probably have a, just at least one question, suggestion, something. It doesn't even have. And and that doesn't mean that we have to do the suggestion, but Hey, maybe we should think about this. Maybe we should think about it next week. Maybe, maybe we need to think about it now. Like that's dependent on the situation, but you're you're pushing that bar just a little bit up, which helps keep it at the level that you want, or even slightly raise it. Right? Doesn't have to push off. Um, if the code does what it's supposed to do, then you just need you don't need you don't need to say hey like there's a big bug here right but just inch that bar up. Looks good to me is not a code review. Yeah, looks good to me is a it to me in my opinion. It's kind of a cop out. It's a it's a lazy response. If it looks good to you, why? How? Because that also helps reinforce the good behaviors that everybody wants in the team by saying what's good about it. Um, so to me, it's an opportunity for developers to share some more information, um, to reinforce good behaviors, to raise the bar of the the product that you're building, to reduce things coming back from QA. Um, and, and generally is a place of learning. Mm. That's what I'm after. Okay. Uh, that seems to jive with a lot of the things I've been reading and, and talking to people about. Um, one, one question I, I have with regards to those areas that you, you mentioned, how effective is code review itself? Um, like the process that you implement in your teams at achieving those things. So specifically, you know, how often do you catch bugs? Uh, how, how, how much do people learn from code review? 
I think it depends on the people. Mm. Bugs caught once in a while. If I get yeah. lazy and I don't pull down the code and try to run it, not very often at all. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's a really important part of it. Just every every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, there's like, especially if, if I see case statements or multiple function heads, I'll catch bugs there because I'll be like, oh, mm-hmm. wait a minute. There's this other case that I know about that should probably be in there. And then that makes me question it. It makes me think about it more. And sometimes I'll find two or three of them that should be there just because of one. <sighs> That's not frequent. I would say it's frequent enough to yeah. probably make it. I would say it makes it worth it. Like, but it's mm. not daily. It's one or two a month. But it, it, I think the other thing that it does, it's a different perspective on the code. Even if you do your own code review, like the next day, you, you look yeah. at code, you, you're, you're thinking differently than you were when you wrote it. You're not in that, mm-hmm. that type it out mode. Um, so I do find that the learning and changing happens a lot more. Um, as far as feedback goes, as for learning, I'm not a big fan of there's this one thing in the code review that needs to get tweaked. So I just ship it back to you and let you fix it. I'm not a fan of that. If it's so I'll make a comment. Here's why I'm doing this and I'll send it to them and I'll be like, Hey, here's the commit that I did. Here's why. Or sometimes I ask them, Hey, you did this differently than I would have. And I think that it has this problem, but can you explain to me? Cause they may have thought through it. Right. So then yeah. I learn because if they did think through it, then I learn. So I, I, I don't know. I feel like learning happens a lot because of that. As long okay. as it's communication. Um, if there are bigger changes that I think need to be made other than little small things, I will say typos get caught a lot. Uh, yeah. Especially in documentation. Cause if somebody wrote documentation, I read it in the code review and I catch typos or things that aren't quite right. If there's something bigger that needs to change though, like maybe this just missed the mark. Yeah, it might work, but it's not going to be maintainable in the future or maybe it's non-performant after Mm -hmm. you throw a bunch of data at it. Then I'll go and maybe grab some of the people that worked on it, at least one of them and say, Hey, can we talk about this? Like, I think, and and so we have that. So it becomes, it's, it's part of mentoring as far as I'm concerned. Like, Mm-hmm. You need to have a plan for mentoring and giving feedback, and it's going to take time. If you're going to be a mentor, you're going to have to take time. And it's it's a, everybody on the team mentoring each other in code review. I don't think it's the project lead's responsibility to code review. It's everybody on the team. Because everybody's going to learn. The senior developer is going to learn from the junior developer, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, I've had that be the case for myself. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, and, and, you know, maybe the junior developer learns something from reading the senior developer's code or, or whatever, too. I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> no, no, this is all good. Because uh, I, I think uh, one of the things that, that I've been struggling with over the last few years is, and I think it came into stark contrast for me in a totally new code base where I have no or very little familiarity with the domain and only passing familiarity with the technology. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes code review is not that good of a place to learn um, because 
you need context mm -hmm. to do code review. And maybe there's some context you can learn, but if you have nowhere to begin from, like, and I was, I was like, Hey, I feel like a junior developer again. Like even I don't like know all this stuff, like none of that stuff or very little of that stuff is helping me right now. Um, and, and so the, you know, like reviewing something to understand how our product is put together or understand how our infrastructure is put together has, has not been that good for me. Uh, do you, do you see your, your new, you know, your new hires, your, your new contractors on, or they're going to a new project that they struggle with that? Yeah. Sometimes a, a lot of times that's when I see looks good to me. It's like no glaring okay. errors. All yeah. I looked for was no glaring errors. Uh, cause that's right. all I knew to look for. Uh, I encourage, uh, to ask questions. Like when you do a code review, it's okay to just ask questions. Code review doesn't mean like rush it out the door. You're not like right. just trying to get it over the line. Cause it's, it's a sharing. That's the point of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's okay to not pass the code review. Cause you have some questions, which mm -hmm. yes, if a team's not used to that, that can be frustrating. But if the, you know, to talk to them about like the new person's asking a lot of questions, it's because they're trying to learn and we're going to get them to be more effective quicker if we answer those questions. And when you ask those questions, sometimes somebody goes, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> and I missed this. And you didn't even know that that's what you were getting them to do. Uh, but if you start yeah. to ask about it, then they start to explain it and you find things that wouldn't have been found without that review. Um, so I think finding asking questions is my favorite too. Yeah. Just actually. find questions to ask. Like that's even if it's like, Hey, I don't know how our infrastructure works here. It might be slightly tangent to the code review, but it might have a big effect on, on that code review and the project in general. Um, so yeah, I, I just try to encourage people to take that as an opportunity to ask a question. Do you, do you ever see questions being interpreted as suggestions? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what, what do you what do you do in those circumstances i think it's okay to have a back and forth an mm -hmm. ar argument if you will not necessarily an argument but sometimes the question is interpreted as suggestion and somebody may come back and say no or if they go do it it's like whoa wait a second um, wait a second i was just asking <laughs> yeah. yeah well and then and then that turns into a conversation oh wait i was just asking so why did you change that? And then if the answer is, oh, because you asked. Well, that's not a good way for us to make decisions. Yeah. Uh, and I would say it happens more if the person asking the question appears to be a senior to the person that wrote the original code. If a senior asks a question, a junior will often assume that that's the way that they should go. So do, how do you, how do you like what do what do you do to kind of work on that power dynamic vulnerability communication talking to each mm -hmm. other playing games together doing things that that don't involve that having a junior teach something and then if they do teach something like do a lunch and learn have have some a more junior person do a lunch and learn on mm -hmm. something that they're excited about within the code base and as a senior person, your job is to pay attention well enough to at the end of the, the lunch and learn to have questions of stuff that you don't know that they may know, mm -hmm. or to be able to say, hey, you talked about this, and I didn't know that. 
once that junior yeah. person sees that they know at least something that you don't know, it it adjusts that power dynamic a little bit. I mean, the only reason that anybody's a senior is because they've made more mistakes than the junior. <laughs> this is true. That's it. And we're going to make more. full of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it's kind of like I try to, I told my son this before, like, I'm pretty sure you're smarter than me. Right. You're, you are smarter than me. The only difference is that I have 20 years of mistakes on you. 25 years of mistakes. Gosh, I'm old. Mm-hmm. I, I've got 25 years worth of mistakes on you. And, and wisdom, I guess, is it. That's, that's wisdom, not intelligence. Like he is, he's yeah, probably wisdom. smarter than me. Right. And unfortunately for him, in 25 years, if I'm still alive, I will have 25 more years worth of mistakes and wisdom on him. <laughs> so I will probably always have suggestions. Does that mean that they're always right? Mm-hmm. No. So, so part of that and, and fixing that power dynamic is not just to ask questions, but tell them something good they did in the review. My wife calls it the Oreo cookie. Tell them something good. Tell them one way to improve it. Tell them something good. So it's like the stack. And uh, I always said, my wife doesn't realize that the good part of the Oreo is in the middle. And then I, somebody pointed out to me the other day, I mentioned this and they said, no, no, the feedback, the, how you can improve. That is the good stuff. That is the Mm -hmm. middle. It's just harder to swallow sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm, I'm one of those weird people who prefer, Oreo cookies all together. I love Oreo cookies all together. <laughs> yes, me too. My wife does not so much like Oreos at all. Um, and I do not like like mega okay. stuff Oreos. They have way, way too much stuffing. So that works in They've code review too. Crazy if lately. you have 900 things to tell them to fix, you just, just pair together and make yeah. sure that you find something good that they did. And sometimes the best thing that they did was they went at it. They tried something and they failed at it. Fantastic. Failure's awesome. That's where that wisdom comes from, is failure. So, so uh, that's, that's another thing that I try to do is, is during the morning meeting, if somebody says how they failed yesterday, I, I get excited about it. Which mm-hmm. also makes it, I think, a little easier to stomach whenever you have a code review that somebody says, hey, we can't do this is because you've celebrated your failures. Now you don't celebrate failures. If you keep continue to have the same one over and over, then it's like, Hey, when are we going to learn from this? <laughs> but right. celebrate failures that, that create learning. And then, then if somebody comes stand up and is like, Sean rejected my PR, but I learned this. That Everybody can be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you did. Heck yeah. Woo. So <laughs> we made the product so better I, together. Yeah, I have to ask. Well, I have to raise the pandemic in the room. You know, you you have remote employees, right? Mm-hmm. And as most people do nowadays, either they're they're like actually physically remote, um, or they're just working from home. How how does how does that affect how code reviews go? Do you, do you find yourself, you know, saying, "Hey, hey, let's get on and chat about this more," um, or or do you just you know interact through through GitHub or whatever collaboration tools you're using. I like chatting more. You like chatting? Um, okay. Yeah. Even sometimes I'll like put something into GitHub and then still say, Hey, let's, let's talk about this. If it's small, 
no. Uh, but I mean, really the hardest thing remote is <sighs> code review, I think on both ends. Um, so if you're tired of getting your code reviewed and, and rejected, remember that the other end sucks too, to do the code review is, is for both sides of that, the reviewer and, and the person whose code or people whose code is being reviewed is it takes vulnerability on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that face-to-face helps establish uh, empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And we like to be a good team, we need vulnerability. And that's the hardest thing I think to create remotely is vulnerability Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of interaction that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's like if you're working remote and you go to set your drink down on the table and you not quite paying attention and you miss the edge of the table and your tea pours all over your lap in a non-remote setting, it's, it's a semi embarrassing but more than likely right. the rest of your team is going to help you clean it up and you create mm-hmm. that vulnerability and trust. Right. When you're remote and you do that and in something that is way less significant than getting the project done. Right. When you're remote that the opportunities to build that vulnerability and trust don't happen as often. Yeah. Because you're not on video all the time. Or if you are, maybe you don't like, I've seen somebody drop hot coffee on their leg and barely go and then move on. And nobody really noticed that they did it. And at the end of the meeting, I was like, Hey, are you okay? I saw that. I'm like, (laughs) uh, and even if you are in video, not everybody's looking at the video all the time. Yeah. When you're in the room, people notice more. So Mm -hmm. yeah, building that. That's that's a really important part of the review process is of, of a team in general is is being able to be vulnerable with each other and building that vulnerability, which is another reason why I celebrate failure because that says it's cool to fail. <laughs> yeah, it's cool to be vulnerable to to express the problems that you've had and things like that. And I don't know. That's to me like the number one thing of making it successful. And remember if there's any problems in a project, it's not your problem. It's not Sean's problem. It's our problem. Right. Because if this project fails, it's all of our jobs. So if there's a bug in production, I don't care if you know, Amos put that bug in there, just fix it. (laughs) And (laughs) that's where I get with code review too. That's why it's like, not don't throw it back at them and say, Hey, go fix this. If it's something just, just fix it. Unless it's huge. And then bring them in, but fix them, fix it and point to the fix and the why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think the, the places at least that I, I've found that, you know, tool based code review, like GitHub pull requests and stuff like that have fallen down is when there's major things mm-hmm. that, that need to be discussed and changed. Like it is not, it is not an adequate replacement for having a design. Uh, or having having an idea reviewed, right? Um, you know, I've even tried we've even tried like RFCs on GitHub at times and various orgs I've been in. I actually think it's, you know, th- those are are good for for documenting what you're thinking, but it's really hard to do a good review of pros in GitHub. Mm-hmm. I would say like Google Docs and those sort of like you know 
word processing collaboration tools are marginally better, but not always. Sometimes you have to have, you know, uh, diagrams and things. I think I'm kind of getting off the track here, but like sometimes I think that where it really falls down is somebody tries something and, and, you know, submits it for review and it's probably completely the wrong direction. And, you know, how, how do you, how do you approach that? Um, I, I guess like your, your point about vulnerability, about sensitivity, empathy, those, those are like really important. So if you have the trust in the team, it, it's, it's less of a, okay, I've, I've gone before the tribunal and they've, you know, judged me unworthy sort of situation. Uh, I also think that this is where like pairing and pair switching helps mm-hmm. is that maybe you weren't on that the whole time. Don't make somebody the yeah. owner of it, make the team the owner of it, because then if you have to throw it away. First of all, if you're switching and you have a pair, pairing is like live code reviewing while we're doing it. Yeah. But you get different ideas and you hopefully fix these things sooner than at the code review part. But if you do have to throw it away, it's not your code, it's our code, which is a whole lot easier to throw away than I spent three days on this. Um, Mm -hmm. Also figuring out how to make small chunks and make little code reviews. Most people I know don't spend enough time on the code review, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, if you have like 200 lines of code, you probably need to spend an hour with it. Like really understand yeah. it. If you can't explain the code in the code review, then you probably haven't done it good enough review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. That's my, and if, if it's six or 800 lines of code, maybe we've, maybe we've messed something up here. And yeah, maybe we need to like, maybe we should split it. The up. review is of what the process is and, 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 and like, you know, is this feature or this, this bug fix or this, you know, enhancement too big. Yep. Yeah. Because the, the impact of, you know, 600 lines of code is huge. The impact of three lines of code can be <laughs> catastrophic to a system. So oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or one. Do you, did you yeah, change I've, that double I've, equals to a not equals? Yeah, it worked here. Uh-huh. Well, it destroyed everything else. <laughs> yeah, I was I was reminded of a uh, a bug I I shipped to production that was approved by my peer um, and uh, you know cost a company hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. But it was like just a few lines. And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on your education. Yep, this is really awesome of them. That should never get anybody fired unless you did it maliciously. <laughs> yeah. I, luck, luckily the, uh, you know, the, the VP who had to deal with this, this incident, this fallout, um, was like, yeah, guys, this co- this costs the company hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is not to make you feel bad. This is just a recognition. Here's, here's the things that we can't do because we lost that money mm-hmm. here, here, you know, this, this will put a strain on this. And, uh, or, you know, we're going to have to spend time doing things other than what we want to do because of this, this, this thing. I think it's, I think it's good for everybody to have an experience like that. Hopefully it doesn't cost, you know, your, your employer hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, but, but it happens at times. And, and it's not your fault. Mm -mm. It's like, sometimes it just happens. But it's really the whole, if there is anybody at fault, it's the entire team's fault, right? Like, if yeah. a bug gets to production, or the entire it, company's, it could maybe be, you're yeah. set up to fail. Yeah, like if a bug gets to production, is it QA's fault? No, 
they did their best. Is it the developer or the code reviewer's fault? No, they did their best. Is it nobody wants to write something that loses hundreds of thousands of dollars? Is it the developer? No. Is it the project manager? No. Is it the subject matter expert? No. But probably all along there, there's a little bit. It's a system, right? It builds. And so a little mistake can turn into a really big mistake as the system goes along. And Mm -hmm. just because nobody notices it, like, that doesn't make anybody it's if I throw, if I toss you a baseball and you miss it and it hits the window, is it your fault? No. Is it my fault? No. It's kind of like our fault. Like we were playing baseball. Yeah. We were writing code. It's okay. <laughs> like we were building a project <laughs> together. We built a product. It costs some money. And so it's, we, it's our problem. You know, it's funny. Now we're getting back into the, the uh, behind human error realm. Yeah, with that's this true. Discussion. <laughs> Shout out to Fred. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you, Fred. Fred. Thanks, Fred, for making me get this book that lives in my backpack for the last few years. Justin, I get out and read it. And, then and we even talked it about it last time, I think. I know. <laughs> Has such an impact. All right. I've got to get out of here. Um, yeah. That Good chat. Thanks. An hour and 15 minutes. We're probably dragging this on for everybody. but Our poor listeners. Yeah. Thanks for the ride, everybody. I'll see you later, Sean. Bye. Bye.